Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. Today's starting topic is International Stereoscopic Union. Why don't you start us off, John? All right. Well, uh, this is kind of a great starting place compared to uh, what we had, <laughs> what was it, two, one or two episodes ago mm. with the uh, International Color Day. Yeah. Pretty and much. Also kind of in line with the coming events of this week. Mm-hmm. The release of certain films. And uh, terrible 3D adaptations of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that'll be a celebration in both 3D and color for you. But no. Mm-hmm. Uh, the International Stereoscopic Union uh, was founded in 1975 and basically is the only club that is officially recognized in the world for 3D enthusiasts. Which is to say, people who appreciate the technology that makes stuff that shouldn't be 3D, 3D. <laughs> like 3D TV, 3D movies, holograms, uh, your Nintendo 3DS, for example. Not just like sitting in a room and being like, whoa, 3D right now. Look at all the 3D. Not like that. Um, there's currently members in 41 different countries. Uh, like I said, they cover holography, virtual reality, uh, stereoscopic photography, basically anything that uh, makes something that would otherwise be flat appear to have dimensions. Mm. Uh, so it's a little bit more interesting than International Color Day, if you ask me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, still, still kind of a weird niche organization for sure. Mm-hmm. And... On the one hand, the membership number seems high, but on the other hand, compared to the amount of people in the world, it is staggeringly low. What's the membership number? I didn't catch. 1,050 members from 41 different countries. That is odd. I would think it would be lower somehow. (laughs) I I know there's, there's that many countries and there's that many people in the world, but still somehow that seems like too many. Yeah. That's a lot of fans of 3D to the point that they'd want to join a club to celebrate that. It also seems like they have a bad tendency to hold their congresses in towns that are sort of hard to say. Hmm. I mean, you look at their history, they had one meeting in 2007 in Boise, which if you don't know it's Boise... (laughs) <laughs> you might say it's boys, it's boys, it's, it's boys, boys. boys? Uh, you wouldn't know. Then, in 2009, they had a conference in Gmunden. Gmunden? I don't know why anybody would put a G immediately before an M. That's kind of weird. It's in Austria. I've never even seen... Like, maybe it's Gmunden? That makes it worse. <laughs> it's... There's no way to pronounce that word, Austria. Just let it go. 
I guess, I guess I should just let it be. Uh, but what about that New Zealand, or rather the Netherlands town? In 2011, they held a congress in the Netherlands town of, I don't even know how to say that. Edgemond, Edgemond and Z. Z. All right. I'm just amused. And then there's one in Slovenia, which I'm not even going to try. That Yeah, there's a lot of J's where they should be. <laughs> <laughs> there shouldn't be J's anywhere there. That's that's entirely wrong. Yeah, J's and L's do not belong near each other in words. Wow. Okay. So, uh one other important thing here is uh these guys tend to uh issue out uh, scholarships for people who are pursuing academic endeavors with researching 3D technologies, and also apparently they have a stereoscopy magazine, which <laughs> they publish in full color, and that's kind of hmm. things that they try to, I guess it's like a publication on the topic of, and maybe even with occasional 3D images in it. Which yeah, is neat. that'd be cool. This article was updated, had to have been recently... Because they mentioned the new Congress being held in 2015. Yeah, and this time it's in South Korea. That's kind of a jump. Everything else is <laughs> nice and nestled in Europe, except for the one in Boise. But I can see South Korea really being up to snuff on that kind of technology. I mean, wow. Yeah, but this, this is this one's being held in... It specifies that it's a cinema center, so... Wait, They're what? actually holding it in a movie theater, I think. Well, ooh, that could be both good and sad. <laughs> I, I emphasize sad, not bad. Just like this is the entire international organization that came to a movie theater. <laughs> oh. But there is a link to that movie theater on Wikipedia. That is mm. a little unusual for just being a th- movie theater, yeah. I guess. Have you ever seen stereoscopic photography? Or just 3D photography in general? I think, uh, and this might be something that people get the reference to, or they might not, but here goes. Because you'll get it, so I'm going (laughs) to explain it to you at least. Um, There are pictures in restaurants around here that, Mm -hmm. uh, namely like Amish-themed ones, Mm -hmm. where if you look at it, and uh, it's like a 3D sculpture that's kind of like built onto the front of the painting. Like the, the painting isn't a painting in and of itself. If you looked at it from mm-hmm. far away, it would be flat. But if you look at it from the side, it's pretty clearly like mm-hmm. in a picture frame, sure. Mm-hmm. But it's 3D elements juxtaposed right. together to make a more robust mm-hmm. looking picture, basically. Yeah. I think that's what that is. Uh, that's stereoscopic, like art but right. as far as stereoscopic photography goes would that be like a viewfinder i believe so because yeah because like it's really cool how like even in the 1800s they were doing this kind of thing they were. where they Man. just take two pictures that were like you know close proximity to one another and then you put your face into this box and one eye sees one thing, the other eye sees the other picture, and it, your brain combines them into a 3D image. It's crazy. They didn't quite have the technology to do the whole like red-blue or you know polarized light thing, but 
Right, but at least they could get the focal point of mm-hmm. where 3D occurred down. Right. And then make it act upon that. Yeah. But no, I remember having a viewfinder as a kid, and that yeah. stereoscopic photography was like the last thing on my mind. I was just kind of like, <laughs> whoa, this picture looks so deep. I didn't even realize yeah. it was 3D. Yeah. I was just kind of like, I don't it know looks that... deeper somehow. <laughs> I don't even know if it was 3D. Maybe they just had the pictures in there. I think it w- I think some of them were, and then Maybe. others were just kind of pictures. But yeah. uh, I remember I had a couple that were 3D-ish, and I just didn't appreciate <laughs> it at all. I was just kind of like, this is neat, sort of. I didn't know how. It was neat. I just knew it was. All right. This article has been pretty well, like, uh... Scavenged? Yeah. I think we picked it clean. Well, do you want to go over to that cinema center and see why it has its own article? That would be kind of interesting. I mean, we should also take note of all of the stereoscopy links we have at the bottom That's of the article, true. too. Uh, There's a lot of them. <laughs> there are. And... Some of them are more tempting than others. Like we have things like Nintendo 3DS. <laughs> then we also have boring things like Chromo Stereopsis. Which sounds like, I don't know, the fear of colors in 3D <laughs> or something. You know, I do want to find out about that cinema center, though. Yeah. I just kind of like, it's weird to me that a specific cinema center has its own Wikipedia article. Yeah. What makes it better? Alright, let's jump over. Whoa. Well that would be that would be what makes it better. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's definitely interestingly designed. They must have had a good architect. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest cantilever roof. I don't I don't even understand how this is a building. Where's the where's the audience go? Where where's the movie played? No, this doesn't make sense. Just look at the shape of that thing. It's like a spaceship. There's very little touching the ground. It seems. Yeah. There's like a little tiny hub in the center. But where is the bulk of the building? It looks like it's up. Okay, it has it says here it has three buildings. That it's called the Cine Mountain, Biff Hill, and Double Cone. Then there's an outdoor theater called the Biff Theater. Biff. But yeah, that picture just makes it not look very big at all. No, it looks like a very small complex. I mean, it looks like a gas station, really. Yeah, that's about how big it looks. Structural, structurally built gas station. Maybe it's just hiding the rest of the facility. Maybe just see that and there's like a whole big building behind it I kind of get that impression because if you like zoom in on it you can sort of see that there's like almost kind of the spiral type ramp you would see going into Mm. a parking garage so I feel like there might be something in or behind or underneath even yeah and this might even this might even be a road like a highway that's like up right and then this building is like down goes down to the ground from there that's entirely possible that makes sense especially if they have an outdoor theater like the biff theater where they might have it it might make more sense for the amphitheater to be lower into the ground to kind of isolate it from you know the noise of the city surrounding it or from sunlight well there are there is a link to the austrian 
which is strange because it's in South Korea. Yeah. Architectural design firm Coop Himmelblau. There's a, it's a name with a letter in parentheses. That's kind of interesting. Does that mean that the uh, L is optional, or do they just mm. not want us to say it? I do not know. Coop Himmelbau. Doesn't sound right without the L. I don't yeah. think it's optional. Huh. I kind of want to go there. I want to see what other buildings these guys have made. This building looks really cool. Yeah. I'm sure that they've made other cool things. Maybe they've made other Guinness World Records, too. That might be their shtick. This could be. I think it's worth investigating. Yeah, let's go. Yep, I believe oh, wow. we were right. I am absolutely amazed by some of these. Where has this architect been all my life? <laughs> wow. Yeah, this one building is all, like, kind of... It leans one direction, and then it goes back the other direction as it goes up. Kind of like an arrow or a sideways V or something. It's very cool. It's in Vienna, called the gasometer. Maybe it's not pronounced that way, but that's exactly how it looks. It that's does look I'm like a gasometer, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to argue that. I wasn't going to argue that, honest. Honest. Um, what I would really want to know is in a building like that, because the built, like Eric said, it goes up and then it kinks in the, in the center. Like five floors up, it kinks in, and then another five floors up, it goes the other direction back like like a, like an arrow where how do the stairwells work exactly <laughs> like that would be a little strange to me yeah it also looks like a very thin building it maybe looks paper thin like it looks like a facade almost oh there's got to be Dep maybe all these all these buildings made by this company are just deceptively small and there's like a lot they're the way you look at them, it kind of hides the bulk of the building. I don't know. Yeah, it catches your eye, but it doesn't take up a huge amount of space. So these guys have built several other things. Uh, mostly, like, it seems like most of their sculptures... Sculptures, sorry. Buildings. <laughs> it, they, they honestly do look like sculptures, though, yeah. to be completely frank. Are primarily in Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit in... Netherlands or Austria and they're all very interesting geometric shapes yeah. just any kind of building that really sticks out as being completely different from those around it and very unconventional that's kind of what this firm does and it seems to be the only thing they do yeah oh I get the name now so in German Himmel means sky whereas Blau means blue so they were going for kind of a blue sky thing with Himmelblau, but the German word Bau, without the L, means building. Hmm. So they were like, let's just make a play on words, but we're German. So it has to be very precise, and we can't just omit the L altogether. We're going to leave it there in parentheses <laughs> so that everybody gets the joke. We need yeah. to make sure <laughs> that they understand that we are referencing <laughs> blue sky not a building that is in the sky. <laughs> yeah, it says it can. the name can be interpreted as either Blue Sky Cooperative or Heaven Building Construction Cooperative. This is kind of weird. 
according to what is that? The third, no, fourth paragraph. The philosophy of their office can be summarized with the, their 1980s manifesto: architecture must burn. <laughs> kind of an architect <laughs> firm has that as their credence has that yeah. as their manifesto that's sort of uh mm. odd yeah i understand that you know they are trying to defy what is known they're going way off the deep end with their designs mm-hmm. and thinking but at the same time they do have to come to terms with the fact that they're still doing architecture yeah they're just doing weird architecture maybe like they could say architecture needs to be re-thought about <laughs> or something <laughs> a little <laughs> less extreme. Yeah, like maybe it, architecture you know. should be considered differently. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a really good like manifesto. Maybe <laughs> something should change. <laughs> the uncertain architect manifesto. <laughs> But it kind of seems like it would fit for these people, too, because everything seems either top-heavy or sideways or like it's going to break in half. Yeah. None of their buildings look very, I don't know, they look sturdy enough. It's just that they are all very angular or very uh, oddly proportioned. Yeah, it seems to be their thing is deconstructivist architecture, and there is a link to deconstructivism. Well, considering that deconstructivist architecture has led to this following (laughs) statement from the uh, manifesto of this company, we want architecture that has more to offer, architecture that bleeds, exhausts, that turns and even breaks. As far as I'm concerned, architecture that glows, that stabs, that tears and rips when stretched. Architecture must be precipitous. Fiery, smooth, hard, angular, brutal, round, tender, colorful, obscene, randy, dreamy, engineering, distancing, wet, dry, and heart-stopping, dead, or alive. If it is cold, then cold as a block of ice. If it is hot, then hot as a tongue of flame. Architecture must burn. I think I could go to deconstructivism, yeah. <laughs> Let's let's see what deconstructivism is all about. As one would imagine, it began in the late 80s, which happened to be around the time that the other company started up. So they were right on the beginning of that whole movement. Kind of makes sense. It feels very... All their their buildings seem kind of blade runnery. Yeah, very... Sort of like a 1980s dystopian future <laughs> sort of way. And there's a nice little gallery with a bunch of different buildings. I want to go to there. I want to go there. <laughs> I want to go to that one. Ooh, that one. That one looks like it has a slide. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? You see what I'm talking about? Um. Oh, yeah. That does look like a slide. It's probably just a staircase, but <laughs> I mean, it looks, it totally could be a slide, too. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, do you see the uh, Dancing House by Vlado Milinic? Dancing House. 
Yeah. That. Whoa. <laughs> That's really trippy to look at. <laughs> yeah, because all the windows are like a little off of each other. And it kind of looks like a Dr. Seuss drawing a little bit. It's like the big Lebowski of buildings. It's like <laughs> one of those buildings you can like stare at and be like, okay. And then you look away and you'll look at it again and you'll see things you didn't see the first time. <laughs> But you're pretty sure that you might have seen them, so you're just kind of like, maybe I should just look again. So you look away, and you look back, and you see even more stuff, and you're like, my god, I really love this now. This is really good. What are those things on the top of the building? This building has, like, eyelashes, it looks like. Yeah, I don't know what that that is supposed to be. It's just hard to think that this thing actually exists. Man, I can imagine what the website's going to look like after this episode. It's just going to be a series <laughs> of, like, of here, pictures. here's this building, here's this building, here's this one, too. Do you like buildings yet? Do you? Do you? Uh, the Guggenheim is an example of deconstructivism. It's all about that controlled chaos. Hmm. And it looks like some of the reasoning behind all these buildings being as sort of, uh, I would say, bodacious. I think bodacious is a good word <laughs> for them, as they are, is that uh, after the modernist and postmodernist architectural movements, which kind of went down to minimalism and uh, got down to brutalism at some points, uh, which is an architectural um, movement that basically was all about kind of rough textures and utilitarian fixtures and it looked, some things looked neat um, mm -hmm. but they weren't that great basically these guys came in the deconstructivists came in and they said no you're wrong we're going to break <laughs> the rules of our architecture screw what is utilitarian screw what makes sense and by the way we're going to just make it look cool because <laughs> and we're going to add a lot of flashy stuff to it and it's going to stick out like a sore thumb, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> this is very rebellious. Kind of like the Picasso of architecture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, like, the asymmetry is very similar, the kind of almost refusal to be like, hey, I could make a straight line, but you know what I'm not <laughs> going to do? Type thing. Uh, like we saw in the other building where it's like, you know, making windows that are mm -hmm. level. Probably one of the easier things to do. <laughs> uh, and the guy was just kind of like, no, <laughs> here, build this instead. Seems that uh, deconstructivism takes cues from Russian futurism. <laughs> Not any other futurism, mind you. Russian futurism. What was that one futurist? Um, FM 2030? Yeah, was yeah, he I Russian? He was... Uh, no, he was a he was a I think Saudi maybe. He was definitely from uh, one of the Arabic countries, and then um, he might have even been an Iraqi. Come to think of it. Oh no! He oh, might have been, I was see. Was he from here. Persia? Was Belgium. He was Bel Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. No, but he was a, he was uh, ethnically. Uh, his family was from someplace else, weren't they? Um. Was he just a really, really... Oh, like, Persian. Yeah, That's yeah, Iranian. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure, because it sounded very much like it could be Connected similar. to that, <laughs> yeah. I wish this, there was a uh, 
link directly to Russian futurism because mm. I could totally look into Russian futurism. I would really want to know what makes <laughs> that different from normal futurism. Yeah. But alas, there is no direct <laughs> link to that. Oh. But there is. Wait, huh? Where? The word futurist links to Russian futurism. No way, Wikipedia, you deceptor. <laughs> well, let's see what Russian futurism is all about. Wow, that's an early start for futurism. 1912? Yikes. Give Lenin a shot, why don't you? <laughs> I would have thought maybe the 50s or 60s seemed to be about the time they started really thinking about the future. Except no, because uh, a Moscow-based literary group Hallelujah, <laughs> <laughs> um, issued a manifesto in 1912 entitled A Slap in the Face of Public Taste. <laughs> Which, I guess, like, Russia was already already there at that point in time. We didn't we don't think about that kind of stuff until, you know, the 50s or 60s in America, but Russia was already fed up. They were done. <laughs> so they were already on to the next big thing. <laughs> so they were in the future even before the Cold War ever started. Basically. I mean, they won the Cold War before we started the Cold War. <laughs> we just don't know that. They already knew how it would turn out. They're like, "Ah, we'll let this go on." We'll let this. We'll just let this one slide. Let them have it. It's gonna work out for us in the <laughs> long run. We've been thinking about this since 1910. It's all good. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah, they were the. It looks like Russian futurists were fascinated with dynamism, speed, and restlessness of modern machines and urban life. So they were basically just obsessed with all of the modern technology and where everything was going in terms of that. And uh, here's where I kind of jump off of their their bandwagon here. They were of the mindset that uh, the likes of Pushkin and Dostoevsky, who I'm quite fond of, uh, ought to be heaved overboard from from the steamship, sorry, the steamship of modernity. Like... Hmm. What? <laughs> I don't even know what... Th- I think that they were deliberately trying to kind of get their foot in the door <laughs> of how culture was changing by way of saying, Hey, this guy here, you know how he's popular? Get him out of here. And do so on a very modern steamship. <laughs> well, I mean, these people even kind of reject their own founder of sorts. Because... Um, apparently when, uh, Filippo Marinetti, who kind of wrote a manifesto that the Russian futurists kind of started borrowing from, Mm -hmm. when he arrived in Russia, he was obstructed by most futurists, uh, Russian futurists. And they profess to not owe him anything. (laughs) So basically, (laughs) this Marinetti guy wrote the Italian manifesto and he just kind of was like hey so you uh, you borrowed from my from my thing and they they, they were just kind of like screw off guy yeah go go back go back home and you know <laughs> do a tour de France or something yep they seem to not like him very much 
even though he apparently did a lot of their work for them in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks like it. Ooh. So while the Italian movement on which Russian futurism was based kind of went the way of a plastic philosophy and did a lot of things with regard to art and, uh, I should say, with regard to paintings and sculpture and so forth, mm-hmm. the Russian one was primary liter- literary, primarily done with words. And uh, a guy by the name of Klebnikov, in particular, developed an incoherent and anarchic blend of words stripped of their meaning and used <laughs> for their sound as l- alone known as Zom. And there's a link to Zom. <laughs> and I kind of want to know if Zom is like early Russian rap or <laughs> what exactly Zom might be. Hmm. Surprised there's so many different kinds of futurism. Yeah, look like at all these. Cubo futurism, ego futurism. I was hoping that Cubo futurism was like futurists from Cuba, but <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. Well, we'll just I'm just gonna jump over there quick and see what it is. Looks like a stub article. Okay, so Cubo futurism is just painting and sculptures by Russian futurists. Some of which were so pretty that's cool the looking. Art f- version of Russian futurism. Uh, okay. But yes, let's go to Zom and see what that could possibly be. Alright, so they are experiments in sound symbolism. Basically, uh, in Russian, the word Zom means behind or beyond the mind and has been translated as trans-reason, trans-ration, or beyond-sense. <laughs> or beyond-seance. <laughs> beyond-seance, if you will. Um, that would be a good uh, band name, Beyond-sense. Beyond-sense. <laughs> also be a good name for like the incense line from Beyonce. <laughs> But basically, it is experimental poetic language characterized by indeterminacy in meaning. Um, it's all about sounds as opposed to uh, a message of mm. any sort. Yeah, and it says that like this guy Krutchenik declared Zalm a language which does not have a definite any definite meaning, a transrational language. That allows for fuller expression. But I don't know. I feel like I would have a hard time expressing myself if I didn't say things that actually pertain to what I was feeling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to have at least the symbology of what you intend to convey attached, don't you? To really, like, feel... I I mean, the only reason why you say things is to relay a message and the only time you feel relief from talking is when you know that that message has been effectively sent (laughs) and received (laughs) elsewhere like you need to know that you are in some sort of rational context Mm -hmm. so I don't really know if I agree with what he's laying down there Yeah, (laughs) just kind of seems a little crazy 
but uh, just to humor him, I bounced over to the article on Kuchenik's poem, Derbolshul, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, there is a reading of it here uh, in audio form, which I'm really? going to go ahead and pump up the volume on right here, and uh, I don't I don't think we'll be able to see, hear it in here. I I can put it in later. Yeah, we can put it in, or we can put it on the website. Either way. Yeah. Uh, here's here's the audio file. Dir bol chil ubeshur skum vi so bu r l s. Almost sounded like he was just reciting an alphabet or something. Yeah, it literally <laughs> sounded like a series of one letter type names, <laughs> not really like words. But it, and it was kind of weird, too, because I was expecting this to be a, a movement of, I don't know, sound being the the main medium. I was expecting the onomatopoeia thing to carry over a lot more uh, effectively than it did, because those mm-hmm. sounded like definitive letters, not like yeah. screams, not like shrieks, <laughs> and not like like-sounding words or anything. It was just kind of... Yeah. I don't know. I can kind of see why the Bolsheviks sort of dismantled this whole uh, Russian futurist movement whenever they took over power and <laughs> made uh, communist Russia happen. Because this, this whole thing kind of seems like they set out to do a nice thing and ended up just kind of making everybody quite mad and uh, <laughs> didn't really have an end game in mind, it didn't seem. In addition to that durable show... <laughs> There's <laughs> a futurist opera called Victory Over the Sun, which I guess also employs the Zom. I don't know. Is it called a language? Is it? I think. Is it a? Th- I mean, like, what would you classify it as? A philosophy. I would, I personally, <laughs> personally, I would classify it as nonsense. But yeah, it's beyond sense. <laughs> as it were. So I can't classify it as that. They've already beaten me to the chase and decided to name it something I have to admit better. (laughs) I can only imagine seeing a staging of that play, of Victory Over the Sun. Mm. Just the poster for it. It's just like three people like sitting around (laughs) in one place and then just making, I guess, noises at each other. Unintelligible noises. (laughs) Oh, look at that. Uh, after they performed in the uh, in the early 1900s, the audience reacted negatively and even violently to the performance. <laughs> Shocker. As, yeah, yeah. Ooh, there's a documentary film about it. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Love to seek that out. Done by the New York Times, it looks like. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely going to have to look into that one. <laughs> I'm glad somebody made a film about that before everybody who was involved otherwise had uh, moved on from the world. Yeah. Wow. What a weird little microcosm of culture. (laughs) They mention here that Zom is meant to be like a universal kind of language that was born organically rather than artificially such as Esperanto, which Um. was, you know, originally designed to be a language that everybody could learn so that we could have one language that the entire world could speak, which, you know, there's a lot of Esperanto speakers out there, but 
hardly is it a common language. No, not even a little bit. And what's more, it's not like it's not very common for people in Europe to learn that because instead what they'll do is just learn several other major <laughs> spoken languages. Yeah. And that's easier because, you know, you're not straddling any lines. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, okay, well, this language is this way, this language is that way. Yeah. You aren't going to go to any country and find the official <laughs> language, Esperanto. Yeah. And a while ago, I was looking into Esperanto and some other languages. There are some actually are like other very cool created languages mm. out there there was one i forget what it's called but it like sought out to be extremely simple and unambiguous and you know you just put together little combinations of letters that mean something and it's supposed to be very intuitive but and easy easy to create any word that you could possibly want to express but it's not esperanto no this is a completely different one. Hmm. So Esperanto is more like a standard language like Latin right. or something like that. It's based off of the roots of various languages that were already in place at the time. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there would be a way that we could find out about that. Like, there's a link here to Esperanto, sure, mm-hmm. but... Well, through Esperanto, maybe we can go to, like, created languages or something. Alright, we're gonna go to Esperanto, but we're not gonna learn anything about it. <laughs> we're just using it as a byway. Alright. But as is requisite, <laughs> we'll go through the thing. It is the most widely spoken constructed language in the world. Its name comes from the Cataro Esperanto. Translates as the one who hopes. The pseudonym under which the physician and linguist L.L. Zemanoff published the first book detailing Esperanto, the Unua Libro, on. 26th of July, 1887. That guy's goal was to create an easy to learn language, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, <laughs> let's look for some languages. Well, one of the first links here is constructed language. Let's go there. That okay, bye, Esperanto. Very well could lead us to the right place. Planned or constructed language. I think we're on a trail okay, here. Okay, here we go. Why does this constructed language have a flag? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I do not know. And why is it, like, an upside-down terracotta pot in front of the sun? Okay, so the three most widely spoken constructed languages are Esperanto, Interlingua, and Klingon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... So I don't know if that was what you were thinking of. No, nope, no, nope. there was Bataf. something else. For chop. <laughs> I was just—I think I was just saying names of Klingon battle cruisers there. I don't actually think I was saying anything Klingon. Ah, <laughs> uh, I found it. Lodge ban. It is under the overview section. Oh, there we go. All right, lodge ban. So it takes the root words of the six most widely spoken languages hmm. which were in 1987 mandarin english hindi spanish russian and arabic and 
effectively combine them in a way that nobody would be very unfamiliar with any of the words. They could kind of look at them for a little while and kind of get close. Mm -hmm. That's a smart idea. A little more global, I think, than Esperanto, which is still sort of just modernized Latin when you come right down to it. Mm -hmm. And the Lodge Band predecessor, Loglan, was invented by a man named James Brown. But not that one, with, right? Not that one. Oh, okay. The one with the middle name Cook. But yeah, the, the grammar is pretty much arranged so that if you switch like two words, it will change the meaning of what you're saying based on like what's the subject and what's the object and everything. But it's, you know, a lot more unambiguous than other languages such as English where sometimes you can say something and you're not quite sure like wait a minute does he mean is he talking about that or is he talking to that or what's exactly going on right right it's kind of vague sometimes yeah depending on how the words are used yeah like an example would be um, they have here uh, if you say me prammy do, that means I love you. But if you say me do prammy, that means by me you are loved. So you just change the order of things and it changes the sentence up. That's actually quite handy. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to follow along with uh, any movie. That I've watched a lot of, you know, in a foreign la- in the same foreign language. I've mm-hmm. been like, okay, I'll try to follow along with the subtitles from what <laughs> I've understood to be the meanings of these words. Yeah. And the sentence structure is just completely <laughs> messed up. So yeah. having something that standardizes sentence structure, that's mm-hmm. very useful. So I've bounced over now to the article specifically on LodgeBand grammar. Hmm. And uh, I've gone down to the section about uh, morphology. Starts getting hmm. into root words and so forth. This article is almost longer than Lodge Band itself. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, sometimes they have to give up, it seems. Like when you go down to stage three, for example, they uh, talk about how uh, there may not be any way to translated so they kind of attach us another part of lodge band to it like with jar spaghetti which is just a prefix and then spaghetti <laughs> the word spaghetti it's just spaghetti with fewer letters <laughs> <laughs> it sounds awfully similar to what the language that they ended up speaking in firefly was hmm. like this one sentence here I ba la mo it's to the river I go, which it just sounds very similar to what you would hear somebody on Firefly just kind of bark out in the yeah. middle of like not being able to swear on network television. Like <laughs> that's that's kind of what it comes down to. But this is a fascinating thing, and it's easy to kind of pick up on. Yeah, you can totally see if you have sentences and an idea of what to say. Uh, given certain uh, consonants meaning up with certain mm-hmm. vowels, you can kind of hear the inf- the inflective similarities. 
to what you are trying to say in your own native tongue. It's kind of springy, mm-hmm. but I like it. I also really love the logic language of uh, of Lodgeband. Mm-hmm. Because when you get down to it, they use things like uh, a dot and then a consonant, A, E, O, or U. And dot A would mean and or, where dot E just means and. Dot O means if and only if. And dot U means whether or not. Mm. Which is kind of neat that they have everything sort of compacted like that. Any sort of Mm -hmm. functioning uh, intermediary word that they have figured out to be as simple as possible. Definitely... It'd be good for programming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It'd be great for programming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, this... Like, of made-up languages, this seems like one that I would like to actually learn if there were other people that would actually (laughs) speak it because without anybody else speaking it kind of defeats the purpose. That is one thing I want to know. Really quick, I'm going to go back to the other article, uh, the original LodgeBand article, and see if I can't... uh, get a list of how many people actually speak this thing. Hmm. Looks like they don't really have an estimate of how many people speak the language. Yeah. Uh, under population, it says the total population of lodge band speakers is unknown. However, the Canadians, the Russians, the Swedes, and us have concentrations of those people hmm. who are trying to either speak or continue the development of LodgeBand. Mm-hmm. I take issue with their notable personalities um, who contributed to LodgeBand because none of them have Wikipedia articles, it would seem. Or at least they're not linked to. I guess they're notable to the people who uh, developed LodgeBand, but I don't think... They're notable to anybody outside of the linguistic community, and so they figured, eh. Um, I do think it has in parentheses for each of these people. It has their lodge band name. And Bob Le Chevalier is known as Lodge Bob. Lodge Bab. Lodge Bab. <laughs> you know, this is a good way to make up screen names, I think. I think it would be a great way because look at like Jorge Lambius has his name is Zorxes. <laughs> How do you have to be Xerxes just by like being oh whatever? <laughs> <laughs> right, so where do you want to go from here? Looks like we have a lot of language stuff. Tons. Where do we have internet? <laughs> internet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of interested in what Wikipedia has to say about the internet. Whoa. <laughs> the internet is like a network of networks. <laughs> they have a handy little picture. Looks like a little tree of peacock feathers. It looks like the pre-render model of that tree from the fountain. <laughs> There's a picture of U.S. Army soldiers, quote, surfing the internet, end quote, <laughs> at forward operating base in Iraq. Wow, riveting. 
absolutely <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> Good job, internet. Way to support our troops. <laughs> now that's interesting. If you go down to the history section, you'll get a picture of a guy by the name of Leonard Kleinrock, and you see the very first ARPANET interface message processors Ooh. at UCLA, which is basically the beginning of the internet. Like, mm. you're looking at the first internet. The first internet. <laughs> the very first one. And it does say here under terminology that the internet referring to the specific global system of interconnected IP networks is a proper noun and written with an initial capital letter. Really? In the media and common use, it is often not capitalized. You know what the other word that I've seen that happen to is God. <laughs> now it says here... Historically, the word internet was used, uncapitalized, as early as 1883 as a what? verb and adjective to refer to interconnected motions. So you could have an internet of movement. Mm -hmm. You could do an internet of train travel. But it wasn't until very recently that we used it, that it became its own thing. There was mm -hmm. no the internet. Right. Feels weird being on the internet, looking at the history of the internet. I don't know if I can take much more of this. <laughs> it's so... I can't comprehend exactly what I'm doing, but basically <laughs> protocols are forwarding data packets to my machine so that I can learn about protocols that are forwarding data packets to my machine. So, mm. I, so data packets of data packets were forwarded to your machine. To my machine to tell me to tell me about about <laughs> the the internet that's in that oh oh no <laughs> There are a lot of interesting articles on here, too, that I kind of want to get into. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't... I don't really think we have time left this episode to do so, but, man, things <laughs> like uh, sociology of the internet and how, basically, the internet has affected uh, people at large, There's, mm. I'm excited because there's been enough time that the internet has been with enough of the public that we can kind of start looking at that now. Like, how has yeah. it changed us? How has it made us more ultimately vicious or worse or better. Hmm. We know we could potentially do like a part one and part two episode. Ugh. Maybe next time we start with the internet and then we go see where that goes. Yeah, I think we could because now that we've kind of navigated ourselves into this crux of uh, being between a self-referential and a place where we're at place, mm -hmm. uh, we might be able to kind <laughs> of linger here for quite a while, quite happily. Yeah. There's a lot to dive into here. Oh, yeah. And, uh, going back to that um, capitalizing the I in Internet. Right. There is an entire article about the capitalization of internet. It's not just mentioned here. It is an entire article all to its own. So, oh my God, we've really 
giving the internet too little time. We're going to have to come back to the internet to come back to the internet. <laughs> Surveillance, censorship, usage. There's just so much. <laughs> and there's even a link to computer crime. Eric, <laughs> we can get to see stock photos of guys using computers and ski masks. <laughs> there's potential here. Maybe copy that floppy? Oh, no. That's a classic. That's a classic. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot of potential. Oh, no. There's a link to podcasting in here. Whoa, whoa, could, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's That might be too far. <laughs> that might be too far. We could podcast about podcasting on the internet while we look at the internet. Are we gonna... I mean, <laughs> I don't know how far we can go down the rabbit hole if we're taking the rabbit hole into the rabbit hole. <laughs> or... Yeah. <laughs> but we're in the rabbit hole and we're reaching out and pulling that. the rabbit hole into itself. <laughs> <laughs> this is... All right, we're going to have to... a rabbit hole loop. We're going to have to come back to this. This is going to be <laughs> the episode that makes or breaks us. Coming up, stay tuned for part two of The Internet. Yeah. All right, well... From International Stereoscopic Union to Internet hey, let's start and with inter. Beyond. Yeah. Beyond sense. <laughs> that term. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, so go go ahead to facebook.com slash podcast and like us and follow us. And then head over to iTunes and rate and review us. Um, it all helps to spread the word and get us out there. And you can also find new episodes on our website at twc.erictoribio.com. Um, I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Mississippi John Hurt for our outro song. And lastly... Our totally true fact for this episode is... While making Esperanto, the founding members consulted Gene Roddenberry for help given his experience with creating the language Klingon. There you go. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles... Join us for part two of this particular chronicle <laughs> next week. Oh, wow. What, a, what an interesting place to end Come up. Back, Dad, and stay right here with me. Avalon's a small town, had no great big rain. Avalon's a small town. No great big rain. Put in miles in the album, you sure will spin your chain.
going back there, I'm there where I put him on all the time. 